Nuclear. This field of science was responsible for the devastating conclusion to the Second World War. This alone would be enough to suggest why few other technologies conjure as much misunderstanding and fear. Today, the very same field now quietly supports our way of life by providing unique ways to interact with reality. It allows us to observe the world in impossibly fine resolution, it enables us to measure and gauge events of the distant past, offers options for diagnosis and treatment of severe ailments, and generates great power with exceptionally low carbon emissions. The greatest tool for promoting understanding is discussion, and it is well overdue in Australia. Welcome to Going Fishing, Australia's nuclear technology discussion. Despite having no nuclear power, Australia does participate in nuclear science and research, and like any science, supports various industries locally and abroad. Today's guest has significant experience in this area and has agreed to discuss it on the podcast. Dr. Macy Delos Reyes, welcome to Going Fishing. Thanks, Logan. Thanks for having me. It's uh, really great to speak to you and, and, and do this podcast. It's great to have you here and thank you for, uh, for agreeing to, to speak to us. My pleasure. So how did you get into your field or what is your field? How did you get into it? Well, I'd actually to date think I think I'm quite a jack of all trades master of none actually. I have done research. I've been in the government for quite a long time and I'm also now currently a regulator, radiation regulator. So how I got here to be honest <laughs> it's uninspiring, but I truly just fell into this field. I mean, I've always been interested in, in the sciences. Um, and back in my bachelor degree days, we did touch on a few nuclear science topics, which I did enjoy, but I didn't really have a hard and fast position for or against anything nuclear. And it really wasn't until my honours supervisor, Professor Peter Mierski from the University of South Australia, who is a massive mentor of mine. He presented me with the opportunity of a lifetime to be able to work on a PhD project related to the nuclear fuel cycle uh, in collaboration with the Australian Nuclear Science and Technology Organisation, ANSTO. And it was really then that I got into nuclear and started to understand it more. Also, being in that space helped me get a better view of the field and I guess not to sound too cliche, it was really, really by learning by doing that I really got interested in, in it, in this field and I've never looked back since, I suppose. What do you find more difficult, sort of researching nuclear science, your day job or trying to explain it to the layperson? I think both, but meaning from the researching nuclear science from that perspective, particularly in Australia, it was really hard getting grants and funding to do the research that we wanted to do because of the nature of the, of the topic. But it, it was a lot of fun doing the research despite, um, you know, with any area of research sometimes experiments don't work out or it's hard to interpret the results or you couldn't get access to equipment um, in Australia and you had to go overseas. So that was quite hard. But I think communications in particular with the general public, especially on nuclear science or anything around nuclear. While it's been great to talk to people about it, I've found that there's always this element of concern regarding nuclear-related trust building. It was typically very hard in the nuclear space and as you're probably quite aware, that's perhaps I think due to preconceived notions on how radiation affects people and I think that's definitely a, a fear that a lot of people have generally because they can't touch or feel radiation so they are generally afraid of what they can't see and this is also again compounded by the fact that it's been quite difficult to have fruitful discussions due to the stigma of anything radiation or nuclear re related mm -hmm. from Chernobyl, Fukushima, or how nuclear weapons have affected cities like Hiroshima or Nagasaki. So it's been hard to engage in that respect because of those 
preconceived notions, I believe. I think everyone has a level of risk, especially when it comes to radiation. And it really just depends when you communicate to the lay person about the amount of trust they have in you and the amount of trust that they have on someone who's delivering information and I guess also the amount of education someone's received or or their willingness to receive new information. Okay. So sort of the, that last point, the amount of trust, sort of the, the, oh, you're just a nuclear shill or it, you're just a shill for the nuclear exactly. industry argument. Yep, that's, yeah, that's right. Fun. I get that all the time. You're, yeah. you're just spruiking it because you're part of it. You're um, part of the lobbying group, etc. So it's really hard sometimes to get through through to people. But it's great when you do. Yeah, nice. Yeah. Actually, just before that, you also mentioned um, some of the equipments you wanted to use to uh, to advance some of the science that isn't available in Australia. Can you give us a quick yeah. example? I did a lot of work on the radiation damage effects of materials and some of the equipment that we wanted access to were things like particle accelerators that would go to a high enough energy level to be able to see the radiation damage effects. So we don't have that here in in Australia. And also some analytical tools like the transmission electron microscope. I used that in Argonne National Laboratory. Um, That was coupled with a particle accelerator and it really allowed you to see in situ, meaning in real time, what the damage looks like in a material. It was really awesome and we didn't have that here and I wish wish we did. But hey, it was it was great though that we were able to collaborate with people overseas to do this work as well. That opened up a lot of, of doors to say, hey, you know, Australia, they're in this game too and they want to share and collaborate information. It was frustrating but also awesome to meet and collaborate with new people. All right. So you're, as you said, you're Dr. Mason Dennis Race. <laughs> you have a PhD. Your doctorate was entitled Properties of Functionalized Porous Zirconium Oxide Materials Prepared by Supramolecular Templating, Processing Options for the Back End of the Nuclear Fuel Cycle. Now, there's a lot of very big words in there, but are you able to give sort of the, the layman's terms of sort of what you were looking at and ultimately what you were trying to find and maybe what this could lead to I can my doctoral research is kind of kind of like investigating ways in which you could make a dish sponge or a mop a bit better at soaking up stuff so you'd want to clean up the good stuff then throw away or separate the bad stuff so that's pretty much <laughs> what I was working on so to put this in into context in regards to the nuclear fuel cycle, you start with mining, milling, extracting uranium, you convert it into uranium hexafluoride, then you isotopically enrich it. So you can get uh, a good percentage of the uh, fissionable U-235 that you need to induce fission in a power plant. Then you make your fuel from the enriched UF-6, convert it to uh, convert it to uranium dioxide powder, use it in your plant, and then you get waste. So my PhD focused on the area of waste management. And here you typically have two streams, two long-term options to, to deal with the waste, which were the storage of the fuel and related nuclear waste into a deep geological repository, or you could reprocess and recycle some of that some of that waste, some of the good stuff in the waste, that being actinides like uranium and thorium and, and lanthanides so they can potentially be reused in other areas. Or you could separate and remove the bad stuff like minor actinides that contribute to the long-term radiotoxicity of spent fuel. And this is where roughly where my focus was, was to look at how to remove this this stuff but it was more on the materials needed to do this and that's where the functionalized porous zirconium titanium actually fits fits in okay so, so yeah 
if I can reiterate, what you were basically trying to do is when you were talking about a sponge, you were trying to make a sponge yeah. that you could yeah. put into you know your mix of spent nuclear fuel, which would differentiate between what you wanted to recover for reprocessed fuel and what you wanted to discard for long-term disposal. Yep. Slam dunk, Logan. That's exactly what I was looking at. It's really interesting. Okay, yeah. so... So the the sponge material was the zirconium oxide materials. Yes. So and that's also where the super molecular templating comes from. Okay, um, so, so, so what is supramolecular? Super supramolecular templating comes in. It's basically much like or akin to self-assembled monolayers. So in a chemical sense, you have a, a series of organic molecules that assemble themselves with with other molecules like a, a lock like a lock and key style so they're attracted to each other or if you take home a piece of IKEA furniture and you need to assemble that but instead of building it yourself it actually happens spontaneously so you I don't like need any external prodding or human intervention to build it it just happens it, you mix it in with your your sponge which is your zirconium titanium oxide and then you template it with this organic monolayer to add what's called selectivity to certain elements that you want to extract. So your sponge is your, uh, is your zirconium oxide material and over the top of that to distinguish or to figure out which materials you want to capture, you put a monolayer of an organic material over the top of it. Exactly. This is not done anywhere in, in the world. What you've described is not used in any sort of reprocessing at the moment, is it? No, not not in any reprocessing commercially as such. There is, this was actually not necessarily a research on the back of, if you're aware of Synrock technology. Synrock is a, a ceramic-based um, waste immobilization technology for high-level waste. So this was really trying to figure out whether or not it could be altered one step further to to act I guess like like Synrock but it was more the minerals the conolite that we had in mind which is naturally found in the earth's crust and it's an, an important ceramic material actually for radioactive waste management because apart from being easily synthesized it also readily incorporates actinides and lanthanides into its structure and it's also highly stable to and resistant to leaching so that's why we were interested in it from that perspective. So to come back to you there were aspects in Synrock in terms of its ability to immobilize waste material mm. that was identified to be relevant to a uh, to this particular method of separating uh, the waste components that you thought were worth investigating. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. I mean, it does it already in nature, so it's uh, it's a great uh, immobilizer for uranium and thorium. So we just thought, okay, maybe it could go one step further. And that's how science works. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> one thing after the other. Beyond this, a um, you actually wrote a book on this. I did. That's all I can say about that. So basically it was a PhD that went so well and thought there's there's more to be said on this. Yeah. And as our published. Well, congratulations on that. Oh, thank you. Understanding of material stress testing is important to any industry, but uh, radiation often adds a further level of complexity to this issue. Can you sort of comment on this? Yeah, definitely. I guess to answer this question from a, a industry perspective, especially especially in the nuclear industry, for the long-term, economic, safe, reliable uh, nuclear operations. Uh, one of the key challenges, particularly from a scientific and engineering perspective, I think, has been how structural materials could retain their desired performance under extreme conditions, um, such as radiation. And it doesn't not only include radiation, sorry, but also high temperatures, pressures and stresses. So uh, a major consequence if these aren't addressed, um, as you're probably already aware, is uh, the deterioration of 
uh, the materials in terms of their physical, chemical and, and mechanical properties. And so for radiation effects, this includes affecting materials that lead them to be hardened or embrittled or cause irradiation creep and void swelling, um, which is something you do not want in any, any industry, including nuclear. So research and current research at the moment is is aimed at understanding these issues um, and working towards them. Um, so if we want to increase the usability of materials in extreme environments like the nuclear industry or aerospace or, or space uh, projects, then these these issues would would need to be addressed and, and they are being addressed by researchers at the moment. Um, so I'd like to cover a bit of the work you did under the Joint Research Centre or the JRC with the Shanghai Institute for Applied Physics. So what yeah. specific... The JRC, the SINAP, Shanghai Institute for Applied Physics and Australian Nuclear Science and Technology Organisation. So to bring this into context, back in, in 2012, uh, ANSTO was actually the recipient of a major grant from the China Australia Science Research Fund to form this research centre with SINAP. Uh, it was basically to conduct collaborative fundamental studies uh, on the performance of, of materials for Generation 4 nuclear reactors and for us that was molten salt reactors. So this work mainly focused on these types of reactors because the Chinese government at the time in an effort to reduce their reliance on coal-fired power plants as well as addressing their energy storage. They invested quite a large amount of money on the research and development into these reactors and to try and bring thorium molten salt reactors online by 2020, which I think they've actually extended out to 2025. That they are. So we began work with China and SINAP in particular to work with them on the structural materials side because they wanted to uh, construct uh, two experimental thorium molten salt reactors. One was a two megawatt pebble bed fluoride salt cooled reactor and the other was a two megawatt molten salt reactor. And so ANSTO, so we, and I still think this work is still undergoing under their umbrella, we undertook research relevant to the high temperature properties, radiation effects and, and corrosion behaviour of materials that would be used for these type of, types of reactors. And so my research area was on, on the radiation damage effects of these materials. So this comes back to a uh, sort of a, what I was trying to get at before, but yeah, when you have radioactive materials and you know high temperature and salt corrosion and whatnot, but you have uh, neutrons buzzing around the reactor and they can impact with the with the elements inside your uh, materials making yeah. up the reactor and they can knock them out of place and that can lead to a uh, lead to embrittlement problems. Yeah. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Not, not. I guess not only neutrons, but alpha, beta, and and gamma. Radiations. It also causes neutron activation. Yep. Activation being that these materials are stable um, to start with, but then when you subject them to to neutron environments, they themselves can be intrinsically radioactive. So this is the over time or the matter that make up the the structure of the reactor. Yeah. That's all. Look, before we go too much further, um, would you like to give us a, a quick description of what Gen 4 actually is? The concept, the notion of Gen 4, and Gen 4 is, that really came around the early 2000s. And this was typically based around this research and development concept for a fleet or a set of future nuclear reactor systems that are more advanced than the ones that are currently in operation today and they were termed from generation one to three. And they, these generation four reactors have aimed to be more economically viable, I suppose, with higher improved safety features, uh, enhanced uh, 
uh, resource use, so using more with less. And also they also aimed at minimising the level of waste production. So under uh, this this work has generally been under the umbrella of the Generation 4 International Forum or the GIF, where six reactors have been selected for consideration and, and one of those is, is molten salt reactors. And um, I think actually, was it last year or the year before? Australia became a signatory to the GIF and they became the 14th member or the latest member in the Generation 4 International Forum, which is really awesome because this really solidified Australia's place in the reactor R&D space. So this enables us to collaborate with other other countries on projects related to Gen 4, mm, which is like, really cool. It's not like this is, uh, this is the first time Australia had a crack at this because uh, anyone who's been listening to Keith Alder's memoir, which I've been mm, going through, yeah. it's... It, it documents a lot of the early research that was going going on when ANSTER was the AAEC. Yeah. And, yep. and in many ways, Australia were quite surprised the rest of the world, thinking, oh, we didn't know you, you, were, uh, you were this advanced in, in researching some of this technology. Yeah. Well, it's, it's good to see that even if most people aren't su- are super aware of it, that Australia is actually in this space again, trying to, trying to make a go of it and hopefully can get something more out of it in the future than what we've done in the past. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I hope so as well. Very cool. exciting. Thorium gets a. Um, oh, I can't remember who I was to, who I was listening to. It was something I saw the other day, but someone described thorium as the gateway drug to get a new or a, a lay person <laughs> into a, it, into being pro nuclear, which I, which I think is very true. It was certainly true. Yeah. For me. But um, um, it's can you sort of give us a bit of a description of sort of what thorium is? how it's different from uranium, and but also maybe in areas where it's similar as well, just so we can understand a bit more what thorium is and what it isn't you know, compared to uranium. I guess thorium, like uranium, exists in nature. It's more abundant, actually, than, than uranium. It comes as thorium-232. Explaining it in terms of an energy source, the difference between uranium and thorium, I think there's a few things that differ from both. One being that thorium used for thorium reactors, they're actually fertile rather than fissile, meaning that thorium, um, much like U-238, it has the potential to be fissionable, but it in itself isn't fissionable and it needs to be converted into a fissionable source by using a fissionable material. I hope you're still with me here. Yeah. Um, so the, yeah. Just for our listeners, when they say fertile, it's basically to say you can make fissionable material from this fertile fuel source, be it thorium-232 or uranium-238, yeah. but you need to run it through something like a breeder reactor or, yeah, or a reactor thermal to make that reactor fert- yeah. uh, to make that fissile fuel. Yeah, exactly. So if, if you contact thorium... 232 say with something fissionable like U-235 or or plutonium you then have the driver so you can start that chain reaction that energy can be produced and a good thing about thorium the thorium chain is that I just mentioned you can use plutonium as a a fissile driver so I'm not sure if you're aware of of, um, MOX fuel Mixed oxide, oxide so yeah. Reprocessed fuel, essentially. Yeah, exactly. So you can actually have thorium, plutonium, or thorium, uranium mixed oxide fuel, and and in this way you actually don't produce any new plutonium. And so that's one way you can consume plutonium or or uranium in in this in this case. Mm-hmm. The thorium fuel cycle doesn't produce any of the minor actinides, uh, unlike the U two thirty five that contribute to, I guess, radiotoxicity in the spent uranium fuel. So thorium waste would be less toxic in a short amount of time. Can I ask from there? Yeah. Because surely you... Okay, so the actinides or the minor actinides uh, come about not through fission, but come about through when it absorbs extra neutrons and they become different elements that are often transuranic, but essentially larger than the uranium 
atoms. atoms thorium, yeah, exactly. thorium doesn't do that, or it produces less of it, those actinides. It produces acid. less of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, you actually um, from U two to U two thirty eight, you get U two thirty five, and then that starts that chain reaction process, and um, you end up with those daughters um, that are um, minor actinides are part of those, and with thorium thorium 232 you actually create u233 which again has a different set of daughter products that you you create from that chain reaction so they're essentially different they make different different byproducts yeah of course because yeah. when you like um yeah, right, because it comes back to the, the fertile slash fissile breeding thing. When you've got your thorium, you don't fission the thorium. You breed it into yes. uranium-233. Then you can – then that is – Then that's used. Is a yep. fissile fuel. Yep, correct. Okay. And, um, yeah. and again, but it comes back to the thing. You're now working with uranium-233, which is smaller than your 235s. Well, yeah, yeah, essentially. Okay. Yeah. That's yep. cool. Cool. Right. Um, now – so this is a uh, one thing I sort of because I, I, I when they you know when this fellow said that thorium is the gateway drug to a uh, to being pro nuclear it's it's true but I also think it is sort of set up in a lot of people's heads that oh we don't need to worry about using uranium thorium fixes all the problems and we should just use that and I think that's inaccurate I think it's more accurate to say that basically if we figured out how to run reactors off thorium and figured out all the challenges that thorium presents. Mm-hmm. We've basically figured out how to burn the rest of the fertile uranium, the uranium mm-hmm. two thirty eight that we've got lying around in a bunch. Yeah, yeah, you've got that in the uh, bag, I think. Oh, thank you very much. No, I, just, <laughs> I just think that's it's often not said as much, or it needs to be put out there. Cause yeah. I'm all for thorium. I think, yeah, look, it's even more abundant than uranium, and there's no shortage of uranium about, but. Yeah, by all means, develop the thorium fuel cycle. I think that's really fascinating. Oh, de- stuff. most definitely, it is don't quite. Don't forget about uranium. Like we've got sixty years of commercial understanding mm-hmm. of how this stuff exactly. works. Don't write it off just because that's thorium's right. a bit exciting. It is. It is quite exciting, and there is so much work going on in this space. But it is in the, it is in the research and development stage, and yeah, I'd I'd love to see how this ends up getting commercialized if if so we all want it to for the reasons that you mentioned i I think it's one of the things worth mentioning or worth realizing is that the molten salt reactor designs like the lifter and or the multics reactors and some of these other ideas yeah they're they're really cool but i think you have people have to remember that it's a complete rethink on how to do nuclear reactors Mm. because i'm pretty sure every other gen 4 design is still based on some form of solid fuel. Yes, that's once you that's right. And, and so a lot of them are a lot further down the track in development. Once you change a fundamental aspect of the reactor, such as we're not going to have a solid nuclear fuel, we're going to dissolve it all in this molten salt. That is mm. absolute. Well, not uncharted territory, but it's um there's significantly less worldwide um, understanding of how a machine like that would behave compared to a solid fuel machine. Yeah, uh, it is um I wouldn't say it's it's at its infancy. I mean this this technology was was around in in the 1970s, 1960s and it was researched quite a bit by Oak Ridge National Lab. But they I think abandoned uh, that idea, I think, one, because of funding, and two, uh, they had a, a hard time with um, with the corrosion um, aspect of of the material. But, yeah, it was just unfortunate that they had to abandon uh, some of that, that research. Yeah, it was – Yeah. Yeah. And- yeah, and you're absolutely right. There is um, significant uh, uh, research in that, or uh, laboratory research uh, in the molten salt reactors, but mm. they don't, obviously, because we went down the uh, the other path, we don't have that 60 years of commercial expertise yeah, that's in it. it, which is significant as well. That's right. Well, I hope uh, now that it's, I guess, 
been brought back to the front line, I hope we can ad address some of these disadvantages, I suppose, um, mm. and have actually have something operational soon. Well, they're getting addressed much great. more today. Yeah, exactly. And there's a lot more Definitely. focus on it. And they, uh, well, if there's people focusing on it, governments are more likely to spend yeah. some money on it. Well, yeah. Well, like the Chinese government. Yeah. yeah they saw well, an advantage yeah. <laughs> in it and threw quite a substantial amount of money mm. on, on, on it, which is, well, yeah, it's great. Yeah. I think it's quite amazing uh, the stuff that's going on in China at the moment because one of their – I'm not actually sure where they're at at the moment. It's often a little bit difficult to find out exactly what's going on in China. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, um, one of their reactors that's, I think, due to be commissioned very soon is actually a Gen 4 design. I think it's a high-temperature gas reactor. Yeah, that's right. Yep. And that's very exciting. That's actually a – is it a pebble bed it, reactor? It is. It is. I'm not sure where, where though – it's being deployed. Um, that's yeah. something for Ian Hall Lacey. He's all up in that, I think. Definitely, definitely. Might have to yeah. check press again, find out where it is. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Other than uh, than the research that we've just discussed there with Synapse, is there any other research of yours that you'd you'd like to mention that thinks deserves some airtime? During my time at Ansto, I did work on on Synrock technology. It's a, a design, a, a waste form design. Uh, for the back end of the nuclear fuel cycle to encapsulate high-level nuclear waste for final disposal into geological um, repositories. Uh, and I found that quite interesting. Um, this this tech was actually developed originally in the 1970s by, by the late ten, Ted Ringwood, who was working at the Australian... National University at the time, and he collaborated with Ansto to, I guess, synthesize um, a rock. These, <laughs> yeah, well, synthesize, yes, synthesize a rock, but they were analogs of rocks that were already in the Earth's crust. So, at the time, it it was synrock and uh, the borosilicate glass that's now used commercially. Areva, for instance, used borosilicate glass, but this was an, an alternative technology to that of, for encapsulation of high-level nuclear waste. So that was quite interesting because there are different types of synrock. And at the moment, there's a, a synrock plant, finally, that's coming online at Ansto. Have you heard of that? Yeah, the AM... The SIMO so facility, yeah. yeah. So, so they're going to be treating the, so the Synrock will be Synrock technology will be treating the waste from the Molly, the Australian nuclear medicine facility, which makes the Molly ninety nine for the uh, for yep. nuclear medicine. Yeah. So my understanding was okay. That, okay so I mean, the Synrock there was developed as a as an alternative to vitrification, which is That's where it, you mobilise the waste yep. in glass in borosilicate uh, glass, which is fine. That works. But Synrock has, you know, obviously developed new ideas, and Synrock, I think, has been demonstrated to be a, a better method for preventing of of leaching from water. Yes, that's exactly right. Okay, yep. and we've demonstrated it. I think we actually had so a couple of trials where we where we immobilised some uh, some I think part of the British plutonium stockpiles. I think they demonstrate, and this is just you know one of the things where science, you know. It often takes a while to keep developing new ideas. Yeah, but they, that's right. they demonstrated that technically this stuff works. And I think what SIMO is interesting is that it is the first time we've put together a piece of infrastructure that's, that is built specifically for a, a project. So in this case, they've got mm. the Anster reactor that creates the, the fission products. The fission products, yep. The. Uh, Airstone nuclear materials, which separates the material to recover the Molly 99, and yep. the waste has to be dealt with. So that goes, as far as I know, in a pipe under the road to the SIMO facility, which I think is yet to be built, and the process is there. Boom. Goes yeah. into the system, packages it all up in this SIMO. There's your waste form. And yeah, well, that we is the plan. Is a, I and then all we have to do is figure out where we're going to store it. We'll dispose of it. <laughs> well, yes, that's <laughs> that's something else on in the pipeline. So currently, you are a senior advisor for the Radiation Protection Branch of the Environment Protection Agency, or the EPA. So what, is, what does this 
What does this role entail and well, what does the EPA do more broadly? Currently, I'm, I'm at the South Australian Environment Protection Authority. Just from a radiation perspective, basically in South Australia, we are the main independent body that administers um, some of the functions or all of the functions of the radiation legislation in South Australia, that being the Ra Radiation Protection and Control Act and the subsequent radiation protection and control re regulations that come under that act. And we are the organisation responsible like, for the regulatory compliance of people who do use ionising radiation in their employment. So our job really is to try and make sure that they're using radiation and radioactive materials safely in line with the legislation. So we're basically like the radiation police, I guess. Does your role, or does, and I think I said agency as opposed to authority, so oh, that's slap on the back that's of the okay. The but, agency um, does, is the US. Ah, I got okay. Too, I've learned something. Yeah. Does the EPA have a fair bit of overlap with our PANSA? Well, in, no, no, actually. So each state is regulated by their own legislation. So that every state has their own rules around how to use um, radiation. And our PANSA is the Commonwealth regulator. So it's the federal so, level. It's the federal level. So um, they would regulate Commonwealth organisations like ANSTO and Defence or CSIRO, whereas we just do um, – it's just the state-based. They don't have any jurisdiction over us. EPA in South Australia is charged with the responsibility of managing radioactive sources and radiation activities within that state, be it from hospitals or from... Yeah, um, yep, uh, that's right. What other, uh, what other industries? Oh, food, food treatment? Um... Hospitals, yeah, food and wine, uh, oil and gas, mining, obviously, in South Australia. Yep. Um, universities. Yeah, of course. Yeah, so those types of places. Cool, cool. Yeah. Often I, um, when talking about... Uh, talking about managing sort of radioactive, they speak of radioactive sources. So, sort of simply speaking, what what is a radioactive source? I'll explain this in a South Australian sense. Go for it. A radioactive source is then they're typically used like what we just talked about in medicine, industry, science, research, um, and they're sources of radiation that are sealed in a capsule, yep, um, or closely bound to another material. Oh, a solid material, um, and that's done to prevent the escape or dispersion of radioactive substances. So, for example, people use these types of radioactive sources in the healthcare sector for things like internal radiotherapy, where you place a radioactive source, um, be it iodine or cesium or, or iridium, for instance, in a patient to treat cancer throughout their body. You could do this in a temporary or, or permanent basis. Or you could also use a, a radioactive source for treatment for external radiotherapy like ophthalmic uses, ophthalmic brachytherapy, which uses ruthenium and strontium uh, to treat cancers of the eye. So that's basically what radio, a radioactive source is and what it's what it's used for. Cool. Just yeah. to stop you there, what, those words you said there, ophthalmic, did you say? Ophthalmic, which is anything around the eye. Well, we've sort of touched on this before, but I'll run with it anyway. I wager the general population sort of underestimates the, the role that nuclear science plays in their ev everyday lives. Mm. Can we go mm -hmm. into a bit more detail of what some other industries are that use radioactive sources and, um, and how they use them? General population, yeah, definitely does underestimate um, the uses of, of radiation in everyday life, most definitely. It's always interesting telling people the different types of radioactive sources and materials that are used in everyday life, in everyday ways. And they're usually quite surprised or shocked because they've never realised it before. And one of those industries actually is is the food and beverage industry. Ooh, yeah, go like on. the wine industry, for, for example. So 
not only do they use x-rays um, to make sure that there isn't any contamination within within the wine for instance they use so they use it for, for contamination purposes and also for making sure that um, each bottle is filled correctly they use x-rays for that but they also use something called a, a radiation gauge or a nuclear gauge to measure things like the moisture content or a materials density so for soil in particular they use this quite quite a lot to determine whether or not their soil conditions would be ideal for grape growing so these gauges have um, radioactive sources as yeah. we mentioned so cesium and americium americium beryllium sources um, so the cesium that emits gamma radiation used to measure the density of the soil and uh, the americium beryllium actually emits neutrons so that it can evaluate the moisture content of the soil. So right. it's a lot of thing people, some of the things people didn't know or weren't aware of their uses. So, yeah, it's quite interesting. They get taken aback. Yeah, well, those mm -hmm. density gauges, I, and I sort of come from a civil construction background, but mm, those density yeah. gauges get used you must to have used it as well. Road. Yes, uh, I didn't right. use them personally, but I, I certainly knew guys that did. And so, yeah, they yeah, no, they hold do. the ground, stick the probe into the thing and says, yep, that's compacted enough. You can drive a semi on it. Yeah, that's, yep. That's what they use it for. Exactly. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, radiation is just, it's not, it's not going anywhere. It's a, um, it's definitely a tool that has very unique, uh, uh, very unique properties that we can that we can harness and use in very very clever yeah. ways. That's right. um, so yeah, you mentioned the wine industry. You mentioned grapes. You mentioned vineyards. You mentioned uh, road construction. There. What are some of the others? We are. Uh... Um. So, oh, you're probably aware at the airports, baggage, uh, screening. Oh um, yeah. So lots of, yep, lots of X-rays, um, in each lane before you get into the departure. Or arrivals uh, terminal where your bags get checked for different things so that's uh, um, another use I remember um, actually it was a flight I was taking to uh, <laughs> the innovation boot camp actually I think they just yeah installed the 3d body scanners and someone was and I remember someone behind me muttered oh I'm gonna irradiate us all oh no, well that sick. doesn't use that's that's not x-ray based actually ah how does that work no actually I'm, I'm not quite sure but they oh, okay. they don't use radiation for that oh, as far as I'm that. aware yeah uh, but even so any amount of a um, radiation you got from any amount of the scanners I thought at the uh, the airport pales oh very in comparison of how much you're going to cop from the actual international flights in the Ex aircraft exactly well exactly from the cosmic radiation um up there definitely more so than a baggage scanner for sure and we also mentioned with uh, what was it? It was the uh, the oil and gas and or mining for a um, for for radiation in industry. Mm -hmm. and yep. I'll jump in, uh, jump in on that. So they again they use gauges, so not portable ones in the oil and gas industry, attached to pipes. It's part of the facility just to check on things like density of a slurry or sludge, things like that. That's okay, so when you're when you're producing for. material, you use it to measure, uh, you know, the quality of the of the material. Exactly, quality, density, exactly, yeah. Oh yes. So, at the moment, you're also the current president of the South Australian branch of the Australian Nuclear Association. Uh, can you tell us about how that particular how the South Australian arm came into being? Yeah, definitely. It was it was really quite quite exciting. It came. It came off the back of the of the Nuclear Fuel Cycle Royal Commission that finished in 2016, and it was quite an ideal time because the past president of the ANA, Rob Parker, and the National ANA Secretary John Harries uh, thought it would be a really great opportunity at the time to have a chat with the South Australian members, and this happened towards the end of 2016 um, when there was, um, not sure if you were, there was a Australian nuclear fuel cycle conference that was held in Adelaide. Right. And yeah, it was an opportune time to get together, to talk to Rob and John, to speak with them because 
everything that was happening at that time in this space with the NFCRC finishing and lots of community community engagement initiatives that were undertaken at that time to talk to the public about the nuclear fuel cycle and for the potential for South Australia to take part in more than just mining. Rob and John thought it would be a great benefit to have a branch start. Um, Strike while because, the iron is hot. Exactly. That's exactly, I think that's exactly what Rob said. <laughs> uh, so that's how we began, I suppose, because of everything happening here in South Australia. Yeah. And does it run pretty much the same way as the, as the New South Wales branch? Yeah, we started off quite hard and fast. We had a meeting a month and that's kind of, I guess we got told that's a, a little too much, but we were quite keen. So we do meet, you know, every three three months to have meetings and that's usually, it sometimes encompasses a, uh, a guest speaker, but we're really trying to try and figure out what we as a as a branch will do so we're really trying still to um come up with a i guess not a constitution because we're still underpinned by the national ana but more what what would we like to do in terms of uh, nuclear education and speaking to the public and whatnot so we're still trying to figure all of that out at the moment I've raised the South Australian Nuclear Fuel Cycle Royal Commission in several interviews, but I think you're the first guest who's worked directly on it. Can you tell us a bit about your contribution? Yeah, I can. First of all, I would say being part of the NFCRC was absolutely amazing. It was truly a a once-in-a-lifetime, extremely hectic, yet amazing experience, which I felt really privileged to be a part of. We had a team that was really driven, it was dynamic, and we all wanted to deliver the best report possible for the potential for South Australia to, again, as I said, partake in the fuel cycle activities beyond those of mining and milling of uranium. So uh, essentially, I was there to provide the commissioner, uh, Kevin Scarce, with advice to better inform him about relevant issues relevant to the terms of reference for the NFCRC. Um, so I was there to assist in identifying key information, key personnel, experts to participate in the Commission's public sessions and that included witness vetting, preparing public session agenda, arranging key briefing materials, summarising transcripts and uh, writing chapters for the NFCRC report and my area for that was actually the front end of the nucleus fuel cycle being conversion enrichment and fuel fabrication. So I kind of had a hand on on that. So I was, I was always on, on UX or, or trade tech most days trying to see whether the spot prices for conversion or enrichment, the SWU, separate working units, ever fell or, or, or rose during that, that 12-month period. So, yeah. so what did you yeah. say, ARCs and what was the other one? Um, trade Tech. Trade Tech. So are they economic trade yeah. price, trading yeah. bodies, keeping an eye on yeah. uranium spot price? Yeah, uranium Yeah, uranium spot prices. So we wouldn't give you the long-term price, but the spot price would be. Oh, okay, so you had to run an Excel spreadsheet and capture all that information. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's fun but stressful. Yeah, but it was right. good. It was good, and the commission, the commission was great. I guess a shame for all of us to have it end the way it did. I'm sure Ben touched on that. Oh yes, he did. Quite a bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was. It was quite, quite, quite sad for us because we thought, oh, here's a great opportunity to really necessarily implement other fuel cycle activities, but just to talk about it just to keep the conversation going. And it doesn't get the airtime, I think, that they, uh, that it deserves. Uh, I mean, I was watching Quanda yeah. just this Monday gone, and, well, obviously you get the usual amount of bluster and bias, uh, but they were they did bring up briefly for, I don't know, 20 minutes energy, and one of the, one of the guys said, well, we should be doing nuclear. Why are we not discussing this? And that was basically 
the entire look in that nuclear got in that whole discussion. Everyone started talking about historic hydropower plans or something or other. And oh, uh, yeah, right. It's, mm. it's a bit frustrating. Uh, yeah, it is quite. It always gets dismissed. Mm. And it's actually um, quite interesting because I think there's more people out there that want to know more about it because you have the, the Twitter feed-in line that runs along the bottom of the screen. There was at least two or mm. three different people, and I noticed there's quite a lot, two or three different people saying, why aren't we discussing nuclear? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? A lot of people, uh, when we did the uh, uh, community engagement rollout uh, after the NFCRC finished, that was one thing that got documented was the fact that people actually just really wanted to know more about it. Mm. Um, well, that leads me into my next yeah. question. So, yeah, you did some work with the – it was the NFCRC Consultation and Response Agency. So, CARA. Yeah, yeah so CARA. What was, what's CARA? CARA? Um, the, so, the Consultation and Response Agency, I, I believe, was just – it was really set up for anyone anywhere to ask questions about the report. So, on one side, uh, people were working towards – answering questions that people had raised either through phone or, or email or, or post. But on the other side of that, they undertook quite a extensive, it was the largest community engagement program in, in, in South Australia, where we took to remote areas, to, to the country areas and also metro areas to, set, I guess, set up shop and anyone who wanted to talk to us was welcomed if they wanted to discuss any part of that report or anything nuclear fuel cycle related. So that was quite an experience. What sort of, what sort of response did you get to, to that? In my opinion, when I, I went out to do some of the, the metro area, it was quite a mixed bag of people and it really was at the end of it just people wanting to know more. They yeah, just right. want to okay, we've read this, how does that work? What if we did get this? What would that that mean for us? Because the biggest, the big proposal, right, was the potential for us to take international radioactive waste from other countries. So there was lots of questions around that, how that would work, what the transport would be like, where would it go, what the safety features would be. Yeah, it was great to be able to talk to people about yeah, it. Right. Uh, for most part, they just wanted to know more, mm. which was great. There were some uh, anti-nuclear activists that would park themselves near us sometimes. Yeah, but it was more. We weren't. Yeah, it wasn't about lobbying for it. It was just we were there to give people information. Public outreach. So, yeah, it was just pub. Right. Yeah, that's all it was. Was this an initiative set up as a part of the Royal Commission or was this something it, separate that came from a different entity? Um, it was part of um, the findings of the Commission to make sure that people were informed um, before they made any decisions. Right. Gotcha. So it was part of the fabric of the report. Gotcha. Um, gotcha. Yeah. Okay. So, Cara, yeah. I'm, I'm guessing now it's uh, it's... It's finished up. Or it's yeah, it has. Finished up with the, it did finish with the... The Royal Commission. With Yeah, it did finish okay. with their report on whether or not to take the uh, conversation further. And that, yeah, right. unfortunately, um, as you probably are aware... Um, the Royal Commission Stopped. at the moment is, is done. It's, it's, it went out and it did it. So, yeah, it went out and set out and it documented a whole lot of information that it was supposed to do and now it's done. It's been yeah. So it, yeah. So that's, anyone that's can read it, but about it. no one's actively working on it. No. Well, we're, we're, um, um, I don't know whether it will be restarted in the future. Who knows what will happen. But um, it did spark a lot of interest, um, not just here but overseas. Um, but I don't know if – there was some uh, willing organisation to take it further. That would be awesome. But at the moment, um, at the I moment, guess, it's a it's it's a report that anyone ha can have yeah. access to, but no one's doing anything with just yet. Well, yeah, sadly that we know of. Sadly, no. Yeah. yeah. Well, not that I'm I'm aware. Cool. Cool. Yeah. All right. 
mm. possibly the most important question I have to ask today. Yeah. You have a new bub on the way, yes? I I do. Yes, Excellent. I do. Yes. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but are you not concerned that the radiation you work with will harm your unborn child? That would actually be a no from me. It's never really been an issue. Uh, the first time I fell pregnant, I worked at Ansto. And now the second time around, I'm at the EPA where we're frequently undertaking inspections and visiting licensees. And sometimes they possess really high activity radiation sources. And I, I, yeah, I do get asked from people if I ever get worried about exposing myself to extra amounts of radiation. But really for me, it was it's just a matter of taking extra precautions, making sure I'm always wearing a personal dissimilar or not going over the – it's essentially not going over the prescribed regulatory dose limit, which in every jurisdiction would be around one millisievert per year. So I went from a radiation worker who was allowed 50 in, in a year or 20 over five to yep. one millisievert as a, mem- as a member of public. But, yeah, it's never really oh, okay. an issue yeah, never really been an issue for me. I mean, research, a lot of research has definitely gone into pregnancy and radiation exposure. And I think you, from from that, I believe you really need to be exposed to very high. We're talking 200, 300 millisieverts in, in one go. For yeah, the sort of levels happen. of radiation that if you had been exposed to that, it's something has gone wrong. Yeah. In the, in the facility. So, yeah, yeah, radiation is actually very well understood. I mean, we've oh, been working yeah. it for 60 years and we know how to manage it. We know how to yeah. look after it. We know how to protect people from it. Exactly. It's um, very well regulated as well. One of the most regulated industries is, is the use of radiation. So, so as a result, yeah, as a you're quite result. safe and you're quite happy to, uh, to yeah, work in that industry quite while happy. being pregnant. So, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Very good. Well, that's very reassuring. What yeah. is there something you'd like to say to to any younger listeners that might be listening to this, interested in the, in in the technology? I definitely would say, particularly to the young young listeners living in Australia, that if you are interested in nuclear science and technology, while we're really not in the nuclear game as much as the rest of the world, I would say totally get on board, go and network, go talk to people. Go build those those bonds with people. So, for instance, uh, Ansto, go get a tour. Go get more information. If you're at uni, you could try and get on board with the Ainsley Winter School. So that's the Australian Nuclear um, Australian Institute for Australian Institute for Nuclear Science and Engineering. Engineering, and they run a winter school every year in July to see. To, for people to get a taste of what ANSTO people do. So that's really awesome. Um, I also highly suggest you perhaps join a, a, a network of other young people interested in, in nuclear. And one particular organisation that comes into mind is the Australian Young Generation in Nuclear, OzYGN. They're based in New South Wales, but they're really committed to having a voice for young people for for young professionals in the nuclear industry and they really encourage young Australians to take up a career in this space so I'd say talk to them as well but also just wanted to tell uh, young listeners that there is actually quite a large age gap between expertise and the young generation not just here but throughout the world so it would be quite disappointing if we didn't tap into that large portion of, of knowledge in the nuclear industry if it were to be lost through yeah. retirement. Yeah, there is absolutely yeah. a, a big a big skills gap in that in that we had many years there where, where nuclear just wasn't being uh, approached or implemented as a as a technology mm. and uh, um yeah well, a lot of that information's been lost a lot of those yeah. things have been lost and there's a big there's a big well in there that only the younger generation are sort of looking into thinking oh this is actually really fascinating why are we not doing this and I think that's why exactly it's really good to have 
Lillian as well as uh, oh, yeah. on the podcast. That's right. And, um, and it's great. To, yeah, that's it. That's it. So if, if we want to ensure that, you know, there's that handover, that transmission of knowledge, um, and if we want to maintain the continuity, I suppose, with technical, social, um, technical and social skills um, to maintain, because we, in, in the nuclear industry, there's quite a high level of safety. The standards of safety are quite high, so you don't want to lose that. So it's really, yeah, important that if you're interested to totally get on board. Final thing before we go, where and when does the South Australian ANA meet? Oh, um, yeah, so I mentioned before we used to have meetings every month, but now they've come down to maybe every three months. But Warmly. if you are listening and if you are from South Australia, please do drop by and say hi. We usually meet at the University of South Australia City East Campus after work during the work week. So if you want to contact us or want to join, please feel free to contact our secretary, Dr. John Patterson, who may also likely be taking my chairing position for the interim while I'm um, away taking care of a new new little person. I'll put a link in, in the yeah, description of the so website. follow that up. Definitely. I'd like to ask this of all my guests. Give me two to three people you could uh, recommend as a guest for coming on Going Fishing. Uh, yeah, two to three people. I can actually name quite a few people. Uh, well, don't flood the market. Don't flood the market. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, if I had to choose three, um, oh, one would definitely be just on the back of speaking about the young generation in nuclear would definitely be Alex Borovskis. Uh, he's, oh, yeah. he's actually the immediate past president of the OzYGN. Uh, he's a uh, he's a plant engineer at Ansto, but he's an amazing advocate for, for young people in in the nuclear space. And there's actually a a conference, an international youth nuclear Con- congress, um, who uh, he's the co-chair of that, and that's coming in 2020. Ooh, yes. um, so for anyone who's interested in participating or attending that, definitely ask Alex and he'd be a great person to have on the podcast. Yeah, definitely. The other person would be Dr. Jordan Greats. So he used to work at the commission with me and he has an amazing, amazing CV. He, uh, his areas in community engagement and radioactive waste. So he'd be a great person to talk to about anything socially in clear and he's such a nice guy so yeah so he'd he'd be good and probably the other one I would say and she's quite a high flyer in South Australia and she's also part of our SAANA committee would be Dr Eva Bizak so she's a professor of medical physics in the University of South Australia and she's been Oh, instrumental as well for because uh, medical physics, nuclear medicine, um, anything medical related in South Australia, it's just um, we do that really, really well. Um, and she's also been part of the team to bring in the new proton therapy. Oh, that sounds techy. Yeah, proton therapy facility here in South Australia. So she'd be an amazing person to talk to. And she's also really down to earth and really nice. Alrighty, Dr. Macy Delos Reyes, thank you very much for appearing on Going Fishing. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Going Fishing would like to thank Macy Delos Reyes for her time and wish her and her family well for the future. The South Australian branch of the Australian Nuclear Association can be found at www.nuclearaustralia.org dot au slash sa dash ana slash this will be my last episode for the year and i plan to come back with new guests in 2019 having said that i plan to release more chapters of australia's uranium opportunities in the meantime thank you for listening to the podcast have a safe and happy new year
thank you for listening. At Fish and Going is the podcast's Twitter handle. Australia is a young nation located on the far side of the world. Our history demonstrates we can stand up to injustice, admit when we are wrong, and muster the courage to act in spite of our fears. By no means are we perfect, but we often punch above our weight on the world stage. Today, our greatest challenge is not posed by international tensions, but from how humanity chooses to progress. We have everything we need to lead the world in making the right choice, and we only need to embrace the courage to do it. This has been Going Fishing, hosted by Logan Smith.